Today's scripture comes from Galatians 3, 23 through 4, 7. If you would first please join with me in a prayer for illumination. God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened to know your truth and your way. Amen. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ of Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may have heard the news uh, about a dramatic rescue that took place last month on Mount Everest. Uh, one of the Tibetan guides, uh, a Sherpa, uh, was attempting to reach the summit of Mount Everest for the sixth time uh, when he spotted a climber who was descending, uh, lying in the snow, uh, not talking, and in shock. Uh, the Sherpa convinced the party that he was guiding uh, to abandon their summit attempt in order to rescue this man. Uh, and in, in an interview uh, in the New York Times uh, this past week, uh, the, the Sherpa named Gelji uh, said that he had performed dozens of rescues on the mountain, but this was the most difficult uh, because they were up so high at 27,000 feet. Uh, this is an area that's known as the death zone on Mount Everest uh, because of the cold uh, and the lack of oxygen. So the Sherpa wrapped up this unresponsive man in a sleeping pad and then strapped him to his back, though he weighed uh, about 175 pounds uh, with all his climbing boots and his gear and his clothes on. And then they slowly descended. They remained in the death zone uh, for about an hour as Gelgi climbed more than 1,000 feet down the mountain uh, with this man strapped to his back. And later, uh, he was asked about the man's condition when he found him 
And Gelgi said, he didn't have nothing. No energy, no oxygen, nothing. He didn't have nothing. This story jumped out at me because I think that Gelgi's description of this man's need for rescue is a great picture of what we've been saying about the gospel in our series in Galatians. Christians believe that the gospel message, the good news, is the announcement of a great rescue. Jesus is the rescuer who entered the death zone uh, for people who do not have the capacity to save themselves. Uh, and if you recognize uh, that you don't have nothing uh, to save yourself, uh, then you get it. That's the gospel. To, to receive the rescue that Jesus offers, all you need is nothing. You don't need to prove that you're worthy of rescue or that you've done something to merit uh, it or that you can do something to help out. Instead, you only must admit your need for the rescue that God offers to all people in the person and work of Jesus. Now, this is why we say that salvation is by grace through faith. But receiving this gift of salvation is just the beginning of the Christian life. And in our text today, in Galatians, Paul teaches that Christians are not just accepted, they are adopted. And he, he uses here several different images to describe the shift of a Christian from slavery to freedom. He talks about being freed from custody under a guardian, uh, putting on new clothing, receiving an inheritance. But, but the greatest image is that of being adopted as God's children. And, and that's what I want to focus on today. What does adoption mean uh, for Christians? And there are three things that we see here, especially in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. Adoption means that you are given a new status. Uh, it means that you're given a new experience. And it means that you're given a new family. And let's look at each one of these. A new status, a new experience, and a new family. First, let's, let's consider the new status. In verse 5, uh, Paul says that Christians have received adoption as children because of what Jesus has done for them. This translation from the New Revised Standard Version is, is good, but it doesn't express the fullness of the Greek word here. The phrase, adoption as children, is just one word in Greek uh, that we could translate as the, the son status or, or sonship. God sent his son so that we might receive sonship. The, the male language is, is intentional, but it doesn't have anything to do with privileging men. Paul is perfectly capable of applying female imagery to the church as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 2, he describes the church as the bride of Christ. But here, he, he talks about uh, Christians receiving this sonship uh, because to have the status of a son... Uh, especially an eldest son in the ancient world, was something very special. It was a position of rights and privileges. Uh, it was limited to a small minority of, of free adult men who had the privilege of inheritance in a family. 
So Paul is saying that in God's family, there is such a place of highest privilege. There's a status of sonship, but it belongs to all believers. Not just men, not just firstborns, but anyone who has put their faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women. Christians, he says, share an identity that goes deeper than their race or their class or their gender. In Christ, we are God's adopted sons and daughters, sharing the same status as the Son of God. He goes further. He says that this adoption reveals the ultimate purpose of salvation as, as he understands it. And, and in verses 4 and 5, you can see he offers a name both to redeem and to adopt. Uh, Paul says, beginning in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children, so that we might receive sonship. Sometimes we can fall into the error of thinking about the work of Jesus uh, that uh, thinks about it in only negative terms. We were outside the family, condemned. We were enslaved by guilt under the law. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes our guilt and shame upon himself so that we might be forgiven and set free. Because of what Jesus has done for us, God declares us not guilty. This is a great truth. But if we only think about Jesus' mission in terms of a debt removed or a guilt forgiven, we're missing half of what Paul says he came to do. Forgiveness is only the start. God's ultimate goal is to welcome those who had been enslaved and estranged, to welcome them into his family as children. With all that that implies, acceptance, intimacy, unconditional love. This is why the the theologian J.I. Packer can say, that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. In adoption, Packer says, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. So think about what happens when a child is adopted. It's an event that's both legal and relational. First, the adoptive parents go to a judge who signs the adoption papers and declares the adoption valid. But then the parents welcome the child into the family. These two acts, the the legal declaration of a change of status and the, the relational welcome, they go together. The the same is true for Christians. 
When you're given the status of being God's adopted child through faith in Christ, he is not only acting as a judge, declaring that you are justified and and legally righteous because of Christ's work, he's also acting as a loving father who welcomes you into his family. This brings us to our second point today, the new experience of adoption. You may believe that you are God's child, but it's not uncommon to struggle with often feeling more like an orphan says that he accepts you. It's another thing to experience that in your heart. And this is exactly why I think Paul goes on to say what he does in verse 6. He says, And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This, This new experience of sonship, of being a son or a daughter of God, is not one that we have to then generate on our own. He says this is also a gift sent by the Father through the Spirit. Let me offer an illustration to help me clear what this experience is often like. One of the the much-loved stories in the Kirk family uh, is the Anne of Green Gables series. Uh, You may know these stories about a red-haired young orphan girl who comes to live with an aging brother and sister on Prince Edward Island, uh, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert. And uh, we love these stories so much that a few years ago we made a pilgrimage to Prince Edward Island uh, to see the family homestead for ourselves uh, on which the stories were based. And we also watched uh, a Netflix series based on the books called Anne with an E. Uh, And in the second episode of Anne with an E, uh, I thought there was a wonderful portrayal of a a heartbreaking scene uh, where Marilla Cuthbert, uh, who is at this point Anne's foster mother, uh, accuses Anne of stealing a necklace from her. And believing that she's stolen this necklace, Marilla and uh, her husband, Matthew, um, make the decision that they're not prepared to parent such a troubled child and that Anne must be sent back to the orphanage. Uh, But after Anne leaves, uh, Marilla ends up finding the necklace. She realizes she's made a horrible mistake, and she sends her husband, Matthew, chasing after Anne. It takes several days, but uh, eventually he catches up with her And he assures her that they made a mistake and they want her to stay and to return home. But the most moving scene comes at the end of the episode where Marilla and and Matthew have decided to make their adoption of Anne official by having her sign their family Bible and take their last name, uh, Cuthbert, for herself. And as they stand in front of the Bible, uh, Anne speaks with Marilla, and she says this, uh, you want me to be a Cuthbert? A real Cuthbert? I'm going to belong? Marilla says, we hope you like the sound of Anne Shirley Cuthbert. I do, I do very much, but I just sign? That's it? Of course, what's the matter? Well, It seems a little perfunctory, don't you think? Perfunctory? Well, shouldn't we hold hands over a running stream and pledge ourselves to each other as Cuthberts forever? 
or break our fingers and mingle our blood as a symbol of our lasting devotion? Surely there needs to be a ceremony of some kind in honor of such an auspicious moment. As someone who has never belonged to anyone before, I believe that this is a matter of much solemnity, don't you? And so Marilla is convinced to bring out some raspberry cordial, and they have a toast, and afterwards Anne takes the pen, and she says, I can't believe this is really happening. I don't think I've ever been so excited in my whole life. My hand is shaking. And then she signs her name in the Bible. With this pen, I take you, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, to be my family forever, to call you mine, and to be yours always. I love that scene, and it's a beautiful picture of the gospel with one difference. Anne was innocent of any wrongdoing. She hadn't stolen the neck. But we know that we are guilty. We have not been the people God intended us to be. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son to redeem us and to adopt us. He moved toward us in grace even when our backs were turned toward him. As the Anne of Green Gables story develops, especially as Anne, of, Anne with the knee tells it, it becomes evident that though Anne may have been formally adopted by the Cuthberts, she has experienced years of trauma and abuse that prevent her from trusting that she's really accepted. She resists this new identity that she's been given. She doubts that it could really be true that she's loved by her adoptive parents. She struggles with shame, and she often tries to prove herself to her new friends and family. I sort of imagine Anne returning to that family Bible again and again uh, to see her name written there, uh, maybe even touching the page to remind herself that it's true. She is a Cuthbert. The experience of Christians is often like Anne's. We struggle with doubt, with shame, with guilt, despite knowing the message of good news. Uh, we're often like the man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But also like Anne, God has given us things to which we can look to assure us in our doubt. The promises of Scripture and the gospel made visible in the sacraments remind and assure us that God really does love us and has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. In Galatians 4, 6, we're told that God doesn't just tell us this truth, but he does even more, that he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So a Christian believes that God sent Jesus to die for their sins on the cross. That's good. But a Christian also believes that God desires an ongoing union and communion with himself through the Spirit. That's what Paul says here, that God was moving towards us in the work of his Son, and that he continues to move towards us in the work of his Spirit. 
The Spirit so unites us to Jesus, Paul says, that we are able to speak to God in the same way as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to him, Abba, Father. You know, that's the only recorded place in the Gospels uh, that we have of Jesus calling God Abba. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see what this means? God's Spirit is not just with you when things are good, in the light of a beautiful day or some great accomplishment. God wants you to know the experience of being his beloved child when things are hard. He invites you to cry out to him as Jesus did at the hardest moment of your life. And he promises that the pattern which was true for Jesus, the pattern of suffering, then glory, death, then resurrection, will be true for you and will even be a way that you might come to know the Father more intimately and personally. So what have we seen? We're invited to believe the gospel, the message that God has justified and adopted us as his children. We're invited to experience the gospel, the reality of the Holy Spirit being poured into our hearts. One final point today. We're also invited to live the gospel together. Christians are given a new family in Christ. Notice how often Paul uses the first and second person plural in our text today. You are all children of God through faith. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. While we were minors, we were enslaved. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. As Eugene Peterson says, no Christian is an only child. The, the cry, Abba, Father, is very personal and in its vigil. But God did not send the Spirit so that we could each individually have our own private experience of his love. He unites us to God's large and diverse family in the church. And so the gospel changes not only how you think about God in yourself, it also changes how you think about other people, and especially people who are different from you. Why? Because it says that every brother or sister in the faith is someone for whom Christ was willing to give his life. And if Jesus was willing to die for the person sitting next to you, no matter who they are, how could you do anything less than love them in the same grace-filled way? Jesus himself said, love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But it's not just those inside the church that Christians are called to love. A love like this cannot be contained. It's always overflowing to others. And this is true because it's rooted in the very nature of God who's always going out in love. Do you notice how Trinitarian uh, this passage is in Galatians, especially in, in verses 4 to 7. God sends his son, and he sends the spirit of his son who cries out in the believer, uh, Abba, Father. If what Christians say about God is true, 
it means that God's very essence is an eternal relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A self-giving love is at the center of reality. And the church is meant to be an expression of that love. When we describe the church as the family of God, uh, Christians mean this quite literally. It's not just a way of saying that it's a spiritual family. We're saying that it is a community of people who have been drawn up into God's own Trinitarian reality through the work of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. What the Son of God is by nature, the believer becomes by grace. Let me close with this. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, before he had said or done anything publicly, we're told that something remarkable happened when Jesus was baptized by John. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus' whole mission, everything that happened from that point, was empowered by the knowledge and the experience of being the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. Friends, you and I are invited into the same reality. You are welcomed and you are sent as ambassadors of God's grace and peace. And to all who believe the good news, God says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate on this rich truth uh, that you have justified us, that you have adopted us by your grace, uh, we do pray for uh, a new experience of your Holy Spirit, that we would know the reality uh, of all that you've done for us in him. We pray that uh, we would not just know this uh, in our minds, but that it would really sink into our hearts. Uh, and then empower everything we do, that we might love as you love and give as you give and, and serve as you serve. Uh, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.